We are finally getting back on track after a little bit of a hiatus in the month of July. And of course, last week, looking at Psalm 119 threw us a little bit for a curve, but I didn't want to get hung up there. Tonight, we're looking at Psalm 120. Psalm 120, as we work our way through. Psalm 120 is subtitled, A Song of Degrees. We'll talk about that in a moment. And follow as I read. Psalm 120, beginning in verse 1. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee? Or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hated peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, it's short, but it is sweet. It is called a psalm of degrees or psalm of ascent. Sometimes it's called. It is the first of 15 such psalms, starting here in Psalm 120, ending in Psalm 134. These are called, depending on how your version translates it, the psalm of ascents or degrees or We could even use the word steps, and that is how this same word is translated many, many other places where you have the idea where you have the idea of going up steps. The word ascent sort of gives you that, that the difference between ascending and descending is ascend is to go up, descend is to go down. It's a marvelous insight. I hope you got your got a handle on that, got a grip on that. There are various theories about why these psalms are grouped together and why they're called this. Uh, one theory, there was 15 steps that the priest went up from the court of Israel into the temple. And it one theory has it that the priest would stop on each step and sing one of these songs as they made their way into the temple. Uh, The problem with that is several of these psalms have David as their author, and of course in David's day you didn't have the temple, you had the tabernacle, and there were no steps to go up in that day. Now that doesn't mean that's not true. It could have been a collection of psalms that were put together later for that purpose, but um, that's not my best guess anyway, and it is a guess, we don't know. Others say these were the psalms that the refugees sang on their way back into Israel from the Babylonian captivity. And that certainly makes some sense. But perhaps the best suggestion is that these were the songs that Israel sang as they made their way to Jerusalem for the feast days. Recall that three times in the year... Israelite males were required to make an appearance at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that didn't just mean men could go. A lot of times women and children go. For instance, we have the story of Jesus at 
12 years of age who has gone with his parents to Jerusalem, and as they're on the way home, uh, they look around and there's no Jesus, and they have to go back and find him there in the temple. So entire families would go. In fact, generally, an entire village would leave together and go. I was reading in one of the uh, uh, accounts of the war of the Romans against the Jews about 70 A.D., where the Romans came into a village on their way to Jerusalem, and the entire village was empty. There was nobody there. They had all gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so, typically, an entire community would leave lock, stock, and barrel and make a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. So these were the songs of pilgrimage as they made their way up to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem. Even when you went down to Jerusalem, you still went up to Jerusalem. Uh, but in most cases, wherever you would be in Israel, it was probably up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on that center spine of a tall ridge of hills. And usually, if you're coming from just about anywhere else, uh, Hebron would be an exception. Hebron's about 500 feet higher than Jerusalem. It's 20 miles south of Jerusalem. But in most cases, wherever you were in the land, you're going to have to go up to get to Jerusalem. And so uh, notice that these would be the songs then that they would sing. It would take days. You, you would think uh, more than likely three days from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, down to Jerusalem. So you've got a lot of time on your hands. You've got a lot of songs you would sing. And that, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, the reason, and again, from the interior evidence, just glance over at Psalm 122. You know this verse very well. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So that lends credence to this idea that whatever these songs are about, they are about making their way up to Jerusalem. And three times a year they were required to do that. But especially these psalms remind us, as they are songs of pilgrimage, that our life is likened to a pilgrimage. Now, when I use the word pilgrimage... Um, we, we think of the pilgrims as those strange guys that came ashore in New England with the funny hats, the, so forth. But to be a pilgrim simply means you're on a journey. It is the same as being a traveler, or the word sojourner is used often. It's somebody who is not resident. You are passing through. We would use today the fact you're on vacation. You're, you're, you don't live, let's say you stop for gas in a town, say, halfway between here and Chicago. Uh, that's not your home. You're just passing through. I, as a boy, remember the old song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Uh, one of my favorites from way back yonder. Well, that's the idea of the way that you and I are taught to think of ourselves in this world. It is not a literal journey. In fact, there are some Christians who may have never been more than five miles from where they've lived all their life. But in the spiritual sense, the Christian life is often likened to a journey. Uh, that metaphor is used in Scripture, and it was made famous, of course, by John Bunyan in his famous work, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've not read it, you ought to. Um, on a trip to England some years ago, I learned, much to my surprise, that his was not the only allegory of putting the Christian life like in a journey, like in a travel. We saw in a museum several others who had done exactly the same thing. 
But the difference was that John Bunyan's is by far the best and therefore by far the most famous. In fact, in England at one time, it was considered everybody would have a Bible, a Fox Book of Martyrs, and a Pilgrim's Progress on their nightstand. That was, they didn't own anything else. They had those three books. Well, let's think about a journey for a moment. Any journey has a origination, has a place of departure. You're leaving from somewhere. Any journey has a destination, place you're headed towards. And it has the continuation of the journey in the middle. That's the long part. Always like to leave, always like to get there. It's that part in between that wears you out, hour after hour, journeying. And man, we have it easy. I, I marvel after sitting in a car for hours and hours and barely able to get out of the car when I arrive where I'm going these days, I read back these accounts of settlers that were on wagons with rough roads bouncing all the way across the country. And, and I just marvel at it, just the trip would kill you. Um, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, according to his sister, was born on a wagon train going from Tennessee to Texas in the year 1900. Can you imagine women going into labor on a wagon? I guess that might put you in labor if you weren't in labor already, but uh, having to give birth in a condition like that. Of course, they always said anybody in Tennessee with any sense packed up and went to Texas. And the folks that settled Arkansas were the folks that fell off the wagon. And that was... Well, I was always told anyway. But anyway, that's another story for another day. But just can you imagine just to make a journey and imagine that you are a pilgrim in the day in which these things were written. In that extremely early, there's no motels. There's no motel six, seven, or eight. You know, you, you, you're on your own. You, you're just camping. Uh, there's no grocery stores. Typically, if you stop for the night, especially if you're traveling by yourself, you just go into a town and you just wait till somebody takes you in. And, of course, taking you in means you get a closet to sleep in for the night, maybe a roof over your head, and that's about it. So it's a very uh, primitive day. Travel is not easy. That's why when we read the, the journeys of the Apostle Paul, we, we sort of get it in our mind, well, he got on the jet and went over here, and, and we forget that just travel was very difficult and very dangerous and many times deadly just to get from point A to point B. But notice that our trip, if we liken our life to a journey, also has an origination, it has a destination, and it has this point in the middle. Uh, we see that, of course, with Israel whose origination was slavery in Egypt, God delivering them from their slavery, taking them to their destination of Canaan. And then the middle part was that wilderness area. Uh, remember that God's presence was with them. Also, uh, Moses' brother-in-law went along to help them make their journey so they'd know where to camp, where, to, where the water was. He was from here with that area. So uh, we see that to the, their, their history was that of a journey, and therefore it makes sense that we look at ourselves, our lives, as a journey. And so if we're thinking of a psalm of ascent, if these psalms are the steps that we take 
to get to Jerusalem, well, then that means you've got to start at the low point, right? You don't start up at the top and work your way down. You're going up to Jerusalem, and so you're starting at the bottom, and you're beginning here in this psalm, and you're working your way towards a destination, which is the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? You got the basic idea of these psalms of ascent? So that's... Did anybody notice while I was reading this that this is sort of a downer? This is sort of a plaintive... If you were going to put this to music, you'd want it in a minor key. Because this is not a happy song. This is not, hallelujah, praise the Lord, let's get up and clap. This is a psalm of complaint. It is a psalm of a pilgrim getting ready to make his journey. And it's reminding us that when we leave one place for another... We don't do it just on a lark. Well, I guess there's some folks that are just born wanderers. Uh, but most of the time, there's a reason we go from one place to another. There's a reason that you are in Memphis. There's a reason why you're here. Most of you, I, I well, I don't know. How many of you would say you're, you're raised in this area? Let me see your hand. Good, good number. How many, let me just go the other way. If you were not raised in this area, raise your hand. And you who were not raised in this area, then I would ask you, why are you living here? You don't know. I, that's, I've often said Memphis is sort of like a black hole. It just sucks people in and they can never get out. They can never escape. Well, there's some reason you're here. It may be, uh, for instance, employment. Maybe this is where your job offer. I'm looking at Craig here. You were in Houston. You got an offer up here. You made the move. You came here. Maybe that this is their family. Perhaps some of you have come home to family. Uh, could be, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, but there is a reason why you're here, why this was your destination. I'm assuming it wasn't just this far as the money went. You just ran out of gas on the, at the city limits. But there was a reason why you came to this place. There was some reason why this looked more appealing than where you were. Right? I mean, you wouldn't come if it wasn't. You say, well, it, it, it doesn't look any better than where I was. Yeah, but this is where the money is. This is where the job is. This is where you got married. And this is where your family is. This is, you, you understand there is a reason why this place looks better than where you were. Or you wouldn't be here. And the reason I'm bringing all these things up is I want you to realize that our psalmist is basically telling you why he is disenchanted with where he is. He's not yet going to tell us where he's heading. That's going to follow in these other steps, these other psalms of ascents. Where, where are you going? All he's telling us in this first psalm of ascent is why he's leaving. Why is he not content, happy, satisfied to be where he is. He's going to give us three reasons. The first reason, and we see this in verses 1 and 2, is that he is on a quest for truth. Did you notice the emphasis in these first couple of verses that he is crying out to God for God to hear him and to deliver him from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. 
He's basically telling you that he's sick and tired of living with the liars. Anybody ever get sick and tired of living with the liars? You think about it. Uh, we think of how our world, um, what is it the psalmist said, I spoke in my haste, all men are liars. They come forth from the womb. I mean, no sooner does the little baby learn to talk, he looks you straight in the eye and lies like the devil. Man by nature is a liar. He either doesn't tell the truth, he doesn't tell the whole truth, or he shades the truth. But he does not come clean, he does not tell you the truth. And notice the psalmist is sick and tired of living among a bunch of liars. And so the first thing is that he wants to go where there is truth. Now, let's remember, we saw this, I guess, last week when we were looking at Psalm 119, that sometimes the idea of truth gets translated into our notion of faithfulness. That God is a faithful God means that God is a God of truth. And the more you think about that, that makes perfect sense, right? That if God was a lying God, He would not be a faithful God. You couldn't trust Him. You wouldn't be able to bank on His promises. That what makes God faithful is that God is a God of truth. He is unchanging, unchangeable. Uh, That's the amazing thing. It's not just that he doesn't change, but he's incapable of change. One of his attributes, the immutability of God. Therefore, whatever he is, whatever he says, you can count on it. It is stable. It is solid. You can take it to the bank. And I'm thinking in my own minds of how things that Um, were once, to me, considered safe, stable, steadfast, have proven completely otherwise. Banks being number one. You remember how the whole idea of banks, they used to advertise the Rock of Gibraltar. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Do you understand that we live in a world of like sifting sand? That the things that we... Your money, good example of something that used to be silver dollar. Those days are long gone. You think prices are changing. What's really changing is your dollar. (laughs) That's what's changing. It's not that prices are going up, your dollar's going down. You understand? You can't count on this being stable, being secure, being trustworthy. I'm thinking of the mores of society. Things that we once thought were absolutes, unshakable things that our whole society was in agreement on, gets tossed right out the window. And, of course, you know this better than I probably. I'm just thinking back when I was a kid. Things like premarital sex, abortion, homosexuality. Everybody agreed these things were wrong 50 years ago. Do you realize that those three things get you put in jail? 50 years ago. I mean, where I grew up, statutory rape was still a crime. It gets you thrown in jail. Homosexuality. Abortion. People went to jail, went to prison for those things. My, how times have changed. 
you understand? And I'm just throwing those out as examples of how things that you think are settled, unshakable, permanent, or anything but. We live in a world of liars and lies. Anybody here in a quest for the truth? Is it not interesting to you how the gospel presents itself as someone looking for truth? When Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, Are you a king? So forth. Yes, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. And everyone that is of the truth heareth me. Well, what is Jesus saying? Pilate, you know, goes on to say, what is truth? Scoffs at it. But notice that Jesus is basically saying the true seeker of truth, and by truth, those things that are steadfast and solid and stable, they're the ones who are going to seek me. They're the ones who are going to hear my voice. People that want to hear lies, hmm, no. That's why light has come into this world, but men love darkness rather than lies. What does it mean? Men love lies rather than truth. Okay? Y'all with me there? In other words, what is it that's making this guy so miserable where he's at? Number one, he's in the middle of a bunch of liars and he wants truth. Number two, I better go on, we're going to get through. It is a quest for safety. By safety, I mean an escape from judgment. Look at these next two verses, verse 3 and 4. What's going to happen to these liars? What will be done to this false tongue? Well, he answers his question in verse 4, sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Uh, The arrows being the judgment, the piercing things of the Almighty God, and then the coals of the juniper. The juniper was renowned for its retaining heat. I, I read an account of some Bedouins who had stopped and made a big fire of juniper wood buried it, came back a year later, and they said the sparks were still there. They managed to get a fire going again. Now, that seems pretty much an exaggeration to me. But but the juniper tree was renowned for that. It never goes out. The fire that is never quenched. Anybody connect some dots here to what our Lord speaks of the lake of fire? The worm dieth not. The fire is not quenched. So notice the psalmist is saying, This place is damned. This place is doomed. The second reason I'm getting out. Do you remember Pilgrim's Christian? He is in a place called what? The City of Destruction. And he's reading in this book. Remember his wife tried to get him to put that book down, quit reading that thing. He's reading this book about how this place is fixing to be judged, how it's going to be destroyed, and he's got to get out. And eventually he takes off, sticking his fingers in his ears because his wife and children were begging him to stay, and he's crying out, life, life, eternal life. It's a vivid depiction of what we're seeing here in this psalm. That Bunyan is showing us that what drives the sinner is not only does he realize that where he is is a place of falsehood, but it is a place that is ripe for judgment. That this world is under the wrath of Almighty God and he must escape it. 
Now you say, well, that's wonderful writing on Bunyan's part. It's very dramatic, but where in the world would you ever get Scripture to back that up? Do you remember when the Pharisees came down to John's baptism? Now, John, you know, he was a real sweet talker. He always liked to, you know, you generation of snakes, <laughs> you offspring, you're a bunch of children of snakes. That was his the way he greeted them. And the next thing he said was this, Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who let it out of the bag? Who let the secret out so that you would flee from the wrath to come? Do you, do you understand that is one of the driving things behind the sinner? We are trying not to go to hell. That is a valid reason to seek salvation in life. It's not the only reason. But the reason we want to flee to Christ it's not just, you know, that we listen to the TV preachers, it's all about health and wealth. But it is the fact that our sins are against us and God's wrath is hanging over our head and we've got to flee to a refuge, a place of safety. And so notice in these next two verses here, three and four, you see the psalmist exactly. He depicts it. I'm living in a place filled with lies and liars. Secondly, it is a place that is ripe for judgment. And then there's a third reason he wants out. is because in the last three verses, verse 5 through 7, we see that he is in a quest for peace. For peace. In verse 5, he said, Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tent of Kedar. All right, Meshach. Now, this is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a place. Anybody have a clue where Meshach... You're... What's that? Now, go ahead, Mike. Nobody else is brave enough. That's correct. Well, it's close to there. It is the land up between the Black and Caspian Seas. Um, this, you remember Gog and Magog, you read about it in Ezekiel and then again in the book of Revelation. Gog and Magog was the prince of Tubal and Meshach. And so these were descendants of Japheth, one of Noah's sons, you remember. Sort of the Germanic races sprang from them. And this area up uh, north of the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea to an Israelite was just up there. I mean, sort of like, I, I was thinking how to, how to illustrate this. We have certain expressions, the podunk, I mean, I don't know where the podunk is. Timbuktu, you know, these are expressions that we use to simply say it's just out there. Well, Meshach to a Jew was out there. This was the people who live off the edge. I mean, they would have no contact with these people. This is the far north. Uh, in fact, Alexander the Great, when he conquered the known world, went through this particular area between the Caspian and the Black Sea and built a wall to try to keep out Gog and Magog. In other words, these were simply the uncivilized, barbaric peoples to the north. 
Didn't know anything about them. Didn't know what was going on. It's just those folks up there. You know, Hadrian did the same thing trying to keep the Scots out of England. Didn't work, but he tried. But anyway, the idea is, is these are the uncivilized, nomadic raiders who live by plunder. And so that's to the north. Okay, next one, Kadar. Mike, you're on a roll. Can't help you there. It is south. It is down in the southern end of Saudi Arabia. And so we have two places. And, and so this gives us a clue that the guy is not speaking literally. Because how could you live in Meshach and Kadar at the same time? Uh, what, and, and Kadar has the same connotation to the south as Meshach had to the north. This is the far end of the world to an Israelite in his day. This is where you dropped off the edge of the earth. This is as far as you can go. There's nothing down there but the Indian Ocean. And so you've got this uncivilized barbarians up to the north. You have the same thing now down to the south. These are raiders, nomadic peoples, again, that just make their living by plundering, robbing, stealing, uh, much like the Plains Indians, you know, back in... 1800s and so forth. That's what they did. We, we have stories. David and I know, grew up on some of the stories of the Comanches and so forth in Texas. And, and that's what they did. They showed up to steal your horses and steal your cattle and whatever else they could get their hands on. That's how they live. And so notice that these are warlike people. And the psalmist is saying, I live among a warlike Bunch of uncivilized, uncouth, barbaric, warlike tribes, Meshach and Kadar. Anybody here live among the barbarians, the warlike folk? Al, I'm looking at you here, thinking of where you go every day. Uh, There's a sense in which we live in a scenario of violence. We live in a barbaric world. I don't have to tell you stories. You live in Memphis, right? You know what the story is. You know what the score is. And so notice that the psalmist is saying, I'm sick and tired of all this. He says, he goes on to say, I've lived too long with him that hates peace. I'm just looking for some peace. I'm for peace, but everybody else, when I speak, they're for war. Now notice that what that's doing is putting him at cross purposes to everybody else. And he's already done that. He's seeking truth while everybody else is lying. He's looking for safety while they're ripe for judgment. And now he's saying, I'm seeking peace. But when I speak for peace, everybody else is for war. There is, I I was just meditating this afternoon on the idea of how much... Uh, just forget the Old Testament a moment. Just let your mind drift to the New Testament. How many verses can you think of that speak of peace? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. <laughs> Janet? Janet? I say that. Speak up. My peace I give to thee, not the peace 
that the world gives. But my peace I give to you. John 15. He has just told his disciples that they're going to be persecuted. In the world, he said, you will have tribulation. But my peace I give to you. Okay? Others? Al? First words out of his mouth. Peace. Oftentimes, he greets them with those words. Be not afraid. Peace be to you. That's Old Testament. (laughs) The peace that passeth understanding. Yeah, the peace of God which passeth understanding. Notice the New Testament tells us we have peace. I'm getting ahead of myself. John? Every single one of his letters, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, it is the word Karen. You know that see people named Karen? Peace, shalom. It is the Jewish greeting, it's the Gentile greeting. But notice that peace, shalom, has the notion of benefits and blessedness be upon you. Every single one of his letters. I was going to say a moment ago that in one place we have peace with God. I quoted it just Sunday morning out of Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then we have the peace of God that passeth understanding. What are we told? We're told to pray for rulers and leaders. For what purpose? Anybody remember? That we may live quiet, and peaceable lives. I've often said we want our government to be Christian and we're never going to have it. The best you're ever going to get from your government is from just leave you alone. That's it. That's the best. That's what you and I are instructed to pray for. That they will just leave us alone so we can live a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and holiness. That's it. That's the best you're ever going to have it. Well, we hadn't even gotten close to exhausting all of the possibilities. I'm thinking of Jerry Bridges' book, Pursuit of Holiness. That verse in Hebrews 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Pursue peace. Chase it, the word means. To chase peace with all men. We are not... One of the... Conditions for an elder in the church. He's not to be a striker. He's not talking about striking matches. He's talking about striking you. (laughs) He's not to be a hitter. He's not to be a physical abusing person. But that's true of every Christian. That's our calling. We're called to peace. The world ought fear nothing from us. We're not out to harm them. We're not out to hurt them. We're not out to take their property away from them. We are peaceful people. Doesn't mean you're going to get off easy. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. They're still going to hate you. But give them absolutely no reason to hate you. The angels on the hillsides of Bethlehem. Glory to God in highest. Peace. Goodwill to them on earth. On, on and on you go. It's an interesting study.
to find out how much the New Testament talks about peace. Bunyan's Christian again fleeing the city of destruction so that he can find this place of peace, this celestial city, this place of blessedness. E.W. Johnson used to say this. He said the old philosophers said that in order to have the good life, you have to have the good society. Now let that sink in. In order to have the good life, you've got to have the good society. Now the lot, that fellow, we've got a lot of questions about him, but one thing Peter tells us that this righteous man vexed his soul daily over the, what was going on all around him. Do you ever get vexed over what's going on all around you? I expect you do every day probably get vexed because to have the good life, you've got to have the good society. And what we are heading for when we're heading to this new Jerusalem is we're heading to the new, the good society. We're heading to a place where peace reigns, where blessedness, where truth reigns. We read that description of the New Jerusalem, that city four square, and I, I know I'm sort of a loner myself. I, I sort of like Wyoming where we, we were talking about it earlier today, had maybe 100,000 people in the whole half of the state we lived in. That was sort of nice. They, they tell a story about a fellow from New York City talking to one of the ranchers out in Wyoming. He said, do you realize we could put half your state in one of our skyscrapers? The rancher looked at him and said, yeah, I guess you could, but we wouldn't like it. <laughs> That's true. Everybody talks about how friendly they were out there. I say, they're not friendly, they're just lonely. <laughs> they don't ever see anybody. Well, that's a, that's a nice life for a lot of, a lot of folks. But in, the, in that city, we're going to be packed in there. D.A. Carson recently wrote about an Indian Christian. I'm talking about a man from India you know anything about the population of those cities in India, I mean, a place you and I have never even heard of. It's millions of people living there. And he came over, he was in Toronto, Canada, and he asked them how many people live here. And I think something like a million and a half, something like that. And he said, don't you get lonely? You know, in his mind, to be surrounded by people who are like you, who think like you, that's the very most blessed situation you could possibly be in. And I'm thinking, how strange that is to our Western culture. We're trying to get away from everybody. This guy's saying, I want everybody close. I want everybody nearby. Well, if that's the way you think, you're going to be happy in heaven. Because in my father's house are many mansions, but it's more like apartments. And I'm going to prepare one for you, that where I am, you may be also. The blessedness of heaven, that city, is that all of God's people crowd in around the throne. In Jerusalem, the temple mount that Herod enlarged and beautified was about 36 acres in size. It's big. But he enlarged it because Jerusalem, normally a town of about 50,000 people, would have 150,000 pilgrims come to town during the feast day. Can you imagine? The place was packed. The courtyard of that 36 acres packed with people all there to praise God 
singing these psalms. Can you imagine? This was their holidays. This is their day off. This is the time when they get together and celebrate. What a time that would have been. That's what the psalmist is talking about. I'm living among liars, in a place of judgment, in a place of war. And oh, how my heart yearns for that other place. And so I'm leaving. I'm glad, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Are you glad? When one day somebody came along and preached to you, preached peace and spiritually, you said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this place of liars, this place of wrath, this place of war. I'm heading towards a place of peace, safety, and truth. And of course, we find all of that in Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, the life. He who, Paul says, he who is our peace. Well, we'll close here. Come back. We'll take another step next week. These are steps. Next week, we're going to get a picture of where we're heading. Right now, notice that nothing in this psalm ever gives you a hint of where this guy is going. All we're getting told in this psalm is why he's leaving. What is it? What's the burr under your saddle? And may I say that the burr under his saddle is the burr that better be under our saddle. Because this is what spurs us on spiritually to leave the world and to pursue the things of heaven.